This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Conversations with My Son, A Diary. And the authors are Terry Ann Fisher and Troy Michaels. Hello, Terry. Hi, Steve. Good to have you with us on iUniverse Radio. We appreciate this very sobering and yet very real discussion about the passing of your son, Troy, after uh, you, how many years of suffering did he go through with AIDS? Well, first of all, this isn't an AIDS book. Uh, it's only mentioned a couple times in here. But it was probably from the time that he told me until the time that he died, it was about six years. So you saw him just continually just go downhill for six years, which obviously is a very rough journey. Well, actually, I didn't. He didn't live here. He worked, actually, in, um, until the day he went in the hospital. He only went in the hospital once that I know of, and he worked every day. And he was getting ready to, or he went into the doctor's office for his regular checkup, or maybe he went in for an extra one. And the doctor says, you need to go to the hospital. And then he progressively got worse that I could see. We did see each other periodically uh, a couple times a year. He lived in other cities from where I lived. Uh, he was able to live in Hawaii and L.A. and San Francisco and Chicago. And so he was able to, he was able to move around, which he liked to do. And he worked in the hotel industry and reservations office and then worked for a public utilities company in Chicago. So I would only see him periodically. And I'll be honest with you, when I saw him the last time when he came to visit, before he went in the hospital, um, I guess I just blanked out how he looked because I knew he was ill, obviously. But there's things people don't admit to each other or to themselves, and I think that was one of them. I knew he was sick, but I didn't realize how sick it was. he was, and that was a couple months before he went into the hospital. Well, you want everyone to take away from your book uh, some very special thoughts and principles. You say this, that most important thing in a dying situation is love between the terminally ill patient and the caregiver, whether the caregiver is his family member, friend, or professional. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you um, call it a love feast. You know, and people are going to laugh at that, and they're going to think, wow, she's really weird. But I think that that's true. It's the one time when we can actually admit to each other, other than when a child is a baby, that we really love each other and we're there to care for them. I mean, that's whole survivor role is to care for that terminally ill patient. And there should be love there because... As scary as it is to all of us, our job, if you want to call it a job, is to help them pass from this life to the other life. And that's just so important. I don't think anyone can say how important that is, and I'm sure it's just important to the terminally ill patient as it is to us. We don't want to look back with regrets in our life of what we could have done to help them, and if we can express that love and caring for the terminally ill patient, I think that's probably the greatest thing that we can do for them, yes. whether it's to sit there and hold their hand or to talk to them. Uh, that's one thing, too, I want to bring up before I forget, is about talking to, the, to our loved ones and to our friends. Um, and we can forget a lot. So what I, what, one of the things I suggest to people is taking scrapbooks in um, when we visit. And even if the person is lying there and we don't know that they're responding, we don't know that they can't hear. I've spoken to people who uh, have said or their loved ones have said that uh, the person 
even though they weren't dying at the time, let's say that somebody was coming out of a, a coma or, or medical situation, that even though they had their eyes closed, that they could still hear. Uh, so we need to be careful, too, that we're not being too depressive about them. And um, we can say at the time that we love them and we care for them, but I suggest using scrapbooks, looking at pictures, saying, oh, remember the time that we went here and, and we had candy or we had cotton candy or we took a ride or we just walked through the field and looked at flowers or whatever it happened. Um, if we can use these things as remembrances to talk to the dying patient about, I think that that would be very comforting to them. When did you decide to write this diary? What, what prompted you to do that? Well, what prompted me was his dying. Um, I wanted to give him a goal so that he could feel that he just wasn't terminally ill and he was going to die and that was it. I, he's always wanted to help people, and he has helped people. He had a lot of friends that contacted me while he was dying and after he died. And so I know that there were a lot of people that liked him and cared about him. So I wanted to give him something that he could feel was a goal. And so he knew I was uh, taping for a while. He knew that I was writing for a while, uh, doing both, you know, in order to write down the the actual real words that we were saying. And strangely enough, what's happened after that, as I have gone through writing the book, you know, compiling it so that it could be published, was that I realized that in a way I was using it for a buffer, that I could at the same time emotionally be involved with caring for him. Uh, it was kind of a buffer to me because I was writing what was happening down so i had to use it from a different you know this whole experience from a different perspective it didn't help me feel any less sad but i think uh it helped and i think it helped him i think it and he didn't state it but i then i think that he would feel that there was something that's going to live of him afterwards well, the book starts out with a entry from Troy, your son, uh, on December 4th. No year is given. And then the next chapter, we're at Sunday, October 11th, the following year. Why no year dates? I want it to be a timeless book. You know, um, even I would go into a store, and if I, didn't, if I saw a date in something, um, I would say, ooh, I don't know if I want to read this because it's old and old varies with the with the person that picks it up old could be a hundred years old could be yesterday old could be old news you know that kind of thing and i wanted people to understand that this can be i hesitate to use the word useful but let's say helpful to them anytime in the future we're always dying Someone, someplace, is dying right now. And there may be people out there that, that need the consolation that hopefully the book will give them that is scary. And I use this word a lot because it is a scary time that this book is going to help them. So I didn't want to, to date it. I wanted to make it timeless. And as you say, uh, the book is to help people realize that it's okay to be scared. Sure it is. It is, because what else are you going to be doing? I mean, in a time like this, you're, you're losing your best friend, you're losing your parent, you're losing a child, you're losing somebody that you know. I mean, I was scared even when one of my friends died, when I would go to see her, because I wanted her to to be comfortable, and I knew she was doing something that I wasn't going to be doing right now, and I didn't want her to be afraid, but at the same time, it's that, I think it's an instinctive fear, perhaps, I don't know, but I think fear is a very normal feeling. And in fact, there's people that have been afraid to read my book, and I didn't understand that at first. Uh, because I thought it was something that it would help everybody. But time's passed, and I've come to understand that they can be, um, you know, 
scared to read, even read the book, even though it hasn't happened to them. But I really think that sometimes we can be called to do very frightening things for the people that we love. And, and our, the book that Troy and I wrote is to encourage others to know that these things to help these people be comfortable as possible. And we wrote it so that the book is to give people hope, and hope can come in many forms. And so, yes, I think scary is, is the normal word, and people don't always realize that. On that December 4th, that first entry in the book, where he told you, I guess, for the first time that he was dying? No. That wasn't? No. Okay. Uh, we had discussed it all the time. Um, after he told me the first time, we discussed it. Um, we were very open about it. We didn't always say, I love you. You know, that didn't really come until the end where we said it more, because it was an encouraging comforting word love really is a comforting word and um but i put that in there because it expressed to me how he probably felt it was probably the most concise thing that he wrote me that really conveyed his own feelings i mean he he wrote other things of course but to me that was the one that really conveyed it the best so the book is filled with Entries in what you called a diary from, from yourself and from him. Yes, real time. Just like you and I are talking now, and I would be taking notes or writing down what you said. Yes, that was how we did it. Was there any point in this continuum of, of communication that something really startled you or really... Uh, uh, calmed you, something that was, you know, from what the, what he had said, or, I mean, is there something of real uh, strategic, for lack of a better word at this moment, uh, something that was just meant so much or was so startling to you? Not really. I mean, that may sound strange, but uh, if I had time to think about it, Perhaps after the interview, I'll go, darn, <laughs> you know, <laughs> why didn't I think of that? But um, Well, it sounded like it was a very calming process, this whole uh, communication exercise, if you will, of the two of you, of course, talking a lot, and but here it is in written form that you could go back over it and, and think about it yourself. Mm-hmm. It, um, yes, it was. There's... I remember, and I haven't read it for a while. Um, I worked very hard on this to to make it easy to read for the the people that I wanted to get it out to. And so, um, but one thing I remember that I said in there was I couldn't breathe. It was like I was holding my breath the whole time. And it was not, perhaps it was more calming when I was reading it and working on it, you know, to get it ready to be published. But at the time, it it wasn't. It really, you know, it was just like I was holding my breath the whole time. And I don't remember when I finally took a breath, you know, and thought, thank goodness that's over. No, I never felt that. So there's never enough hugs, there's never enough tears, there's never enough I love you, and there's even, there's never enough laughing. Absolutely. That's needed, too. You know, one of the things about going back and using scrapbooks and looking at the pictures and talking to the terminal patient um, about is there's funny things that happen in our lives. Now, I'll be honest, right now, I can't think of anything that's funny that's happened in my life lately, but I know there is because I try to see humor in, in everything. Well, not everything, but, you know, a lot of things. Um, but we need to talk about the good times, and a lot of times the good times involve laughter. Remember when you did that silly thing, whatever it was, or remember how scared you were over something and, and it was nothing at all, like going down a big slide at the amusement park? You know, these are things you can laugh about. They're memories. They're good memories. And I think that that's one of the things that you can do when you're, when you're helping a dying patient is to talk about the good stuff. And if regrets come up, maybe what you need is to say, too, and I never thought about it till just now, is to say, I'm sorry I didn't, and tell them. 
Maybe I'm sorry I hurt your feelings that day. But I think the thing to do is to really, if it's funny, it's funny. And what's wrong with laughing with someone, whether they're dying or not? There's nothing wrong with, with, with that. At least I don't think so. In your epilogue, you say, This book is to my son and friend and to all the people in the world who have loved and been loved throughout history. Writing this is a contribution that Troy and I wanted to make to other people like us whose family members and loved ones were dying, no matter what the disease. That's right. Everybody's going to die from something. We're going to wear out in some way, and if we don't wear out, we're going to have a disease. Now, and I will bring up AIDS again. I didn't think I would because um, I'm not ashamed of it or anything like that. It's just still it's got a stigma attached, you know? Sure. But there's other uh, kinds of things that everybody dies of, and a lot of times there are things that people are embarrassed about or families are embarrassed about. Um, We we just all die of something. And the hardest thing is uh, if a person dies suddenly and we can't talk to them and tell them the things that I was fortunate enough to be able to tell Troy. Right. Well, congratulations, Terry. The title of the book, Conversations with My Son, A Diary. Tell us how to get your book. You can go to iUniverse.com. That's the best way to get it. You can also um, go into, um, you know, Borders or Barnes & Noble and, and order it also. But probably the easiest way is to go to iUniverse. Um, it's also available through Amazon and Kindle and the Nook, as far as I know um, it is. Um, and um, so I would, go, I would go to iUniverse.com and, and get directed from there. It's also, once you, and tell your friends about it if you do like it, and it's also in the front of the book itself on the page after the title page. But it's iUniverse.com, and the I is just the letter I. Well, thank you, Terry. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, you're welcome, Steve, and thank you very much for letting me do this. The title of the book, Conversations with My Son, A Diary. And the authors, Terry Ann Fisher and Troy Michaels. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Shakespeare's Revenge, and the author, John O'Shea. And John joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, John. 
Hi, Steve. I'm going to read a couple of things that you have written about your book just to give everyone an understanding of where we're headed. Stay with us, folks. We're not going to be quoting Shakespeare. (laughs) Of course, those of you who love Shakespeare will, you know, maybe be sad. But this is a real twist when it comes to what we generally think about Shakespeare. This is what you have written, John. Shakespeare Revenge is a thriller about a young man who stumbles onto a trail that he thinks might lead to the location of Shakespeare's original drafts. He quickly learns that Shakespeare was really a criminal banished from London and who had a plan to cause widespread damage, and that plan for revenge can still be put in motion today. Well, that is very, very different, and uh, what prompted you, motivated you to go down this road? Well, you know, it it was the first time that I had heard of the notion that no one had ever seen a page of Shakespeare's writing with his original handwriting on it. And I don't think anyone uh, would believe that, you know, right right from the first statement like that, you'd go, well, what's that about? Yeah, and and that was my first question is, how could that be? And then the second question is, as a you know, as a thriller writer, well, what if they did? Uh, you know, and that leads to the next question: Well, where might that be, and how might you find it? And what if it pointed you in a direction that you weren't ready for? And of course, by that I meant, you know, what if it tells us that Shakespeare wasn't who we thought he was? And of course, and of course, the possibility of buried treasure here right so the notion that um any any page with shakespeare's original writing on it i imagine these days would sell at auction for a handsome sum so that in and of itself is treasure and let alone if you could find an entire manuscript or two or a significant portion of the canon now why did you make Maine, the place of the story? It, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, I, I, I live in and around uh, New York City and Connecticut, and um, the idea that something has been left to be discovered in New York City could happen, but along the coast of Maine, uh, much more likely. And uh, Maine is a you know, it is a landing point for a lot of early explorers to the country. And uh, when you are trying to find hidden treasure and you want the audience in today's times to believe that it could have been in an area that was untouched all these years of the, of the country's existence, Maine makes a great backdrop. And, you know, you, you, you still have in Maine this feel of, of untouched small town, you know, innocent heritage. You can still go up to the coast of Maine and, and get the sense of a salty, you know, fishing village. Um, and you can hear it in the way that people talk up there. You know, it's very different from metropolitan areas on the, on the East Coast. And then you have the backdrop of the wilderness and uh, acres of undeveloped land. And so it, for this book, where we, where we basically have a chase across small-town Maine, it, it feels great. I can see it on the big screen already. <laughs> <laughs> From your lips to God's ears, as they say, Steve. <laughs> All right. Tell us about Tanner Cook, the main character. How was he involved? Yeah, so Tanner Cook is... Uh, a young aspiring cyclist who has uh in the past uh, year or so graduated from the University of Maine and uh unfortunately as the story opens uh several months back he was in a uh, a terrible racing accident over in Spain and as he's on the mend uh as his his leg which got crushed is on the mend he has he needs to work and so he's taken to helping the state clean out uh, estates of those who haven't left a will behind. And that's at the point at which we, uh, he discovers in an old farmhouse, a hidden attic. And this attic was actually the, uh, the workshop of a recluse who spent a good portion of his life 
reading into the text of the text of Shakespeare's plays. And within there, he discovers some clues to uh, not only the hidden location of uh, Shakespeare's original works, but uh, Shakespeare's original identity. Yeah, a person who really isn't who we thought he was at all. That's right. That's right. Um, or so you have to read the book to find out. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, especially when you when you hear the words criminal intent. <laughs> mm. Well, the, the, you know, the fascinating thing about Shakespeare's time was um, there it, it wasn't a large population, especially at the upper rings of society. And those likely suspects who might have been Shakespeare, if it was not Shakespeare himself as the author, there is such a good degree of, of intrigue, of capability, of motivation, uh, mystery, uh, that, you know, if it was not Shakespeare who wrote his plays, there are some really juicy, mysterious characters who would, who would fill the vacuum. Especially when we know how Shakespeare probed the human condition psychologically, emotionally. Uh, he was right on the nerve center, and so he may have been just a whole lot more eccentric and, and wild than we could ever imagine. Well, you know, that's that's the neat thing about Shakespeare, and I think partially why he's still relevant in a couple of ways today. One, you know, the fact that he did tap into these timeless universal elements in in people, and, you know, that's what his works explore. So in one sense, those, those elements of us as, you know, human beings is, are always going to be around. The other reason I think that, you know, he is, is highly relevant today is just as authors like myself have to fight for every eyeball and, and eardrum that we can get our hands around uh, for attention, whether it's the Internet or, um, you know, the, the fact that you can get a movie on demand anywhere, that you've got 300 cable channels you know, we're, we're, we're constantly trying to battle for attention. He did, he had to do the same thing against, you know, everything from hangings to quarter, to quarterings to cockfights to bear fights to brothels, gambling dens. He had to fight for an audience just like we do today. And so we're very much akin. Uh, just across generations. And of course, the theme of murder in his stories. He loved blood. You know, he loved blood, he loved blades, he loved suicides, he loved poisoning. Um, you know, he invented a lot of words around the frame, like cold-blooded. Um, yeah, I mean, here was somebody who we don't think of as the ultimate thriller writer, but for sure, he loved it all. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and you can just see it in the remakes of his works, Um you know, you could easily slap an R rating on some of the uh, uh, of some of the remakes of his his classics. And of course, when there's buried treasure, there are others chasing the same thing. So Tanner probably has some very very dangerous competitors. Yeah, you know, one of my my favorite all time storytellers uh, is Alfred Hitchcock, and you know, it doesn't take too long in many Alfred Hitchcock movies before somebody of such innocence and curiosity suddenly finds themselves in way over their head, you know, in an essence, a race to the end versus those, you know, surrounding him or her. And um, that's, that's, I, that has always stuck with me and I think makes for the most tense thrillers and that's, that's a huge component of Shakespeare's Revenge. So Tanner is betrayed, attacked, and left for dead, and then his brother suddenly disappears. Now, how is his brother involved in this? You know, um, sometimes when, you know, competitors, and here we're talking about violent, highly motivated, highly incented competitors, when they think that you've got the answer, and they can't get a hold of you to get that answer. They'll try all forms of leverage that they can, including going after um, 
family members and loved ones and 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 that's where Tanner's only kin his uh his older brother uh gets wrapped up in the uh, in the mystery and the chase and the chase also for Tanner to save his brother's life as well as to find the treasure you know the one thing i i learned from listening to the likes of uh of Steven Spielberg describe what what makes a good story is that m- most people say a story has a beginning, middle, and an end, and Steven Spielberg says, you know, some of the best stories never stop beginning. And and I think in the beginning of stories, that's where you get the best immediate bang for your buck, meaning all the stakes are raised immediately. And, uh, you know, all the stakes I try to raise immediately and then keep raising them. And... Uh, you know, Tanner becomes under immediate pressure to get to the answer of who was Shakespeare. How did he come to America if he did? If he did, where where did he go? And uh, if he brought his original manuscripts with him, where did they wind up? And the prologue is dated September 6, 1628. So, uh, you know, you jump right in at an interesting date. Why did you choose that? You know, it's um, it's just about the time after which Shakespeare died. In fact, um, it's it's a little bit after the time that Shakespeare died, and uh, I think it for me it was it was a, it was delicious fun to replay for me the last moments in somebody's life. Um, and replay them not where they should have been in in all historical record over in Europe, but over here. And so uh, it was a delicious taunt, taunt on history right out from the beginning of, of the novel. And of course, then we bring it immediately back to, uh, to, to modern time, but um, it was fun and hopefully a great setup for uh, the unfolding story to come. Your research must have been so challenging. You know, I, I, I'd like to say, and maybe maybe down the road I'd be able to say that this is all I do in life but write, but like many um, up-and-coming writers, uh, I do have a day job. And so uh, fitting in the research alongside normal work um, was a nice challenge. Uh, and I say nice challenge because some of the things that I had to learn about from Shakespeare to Elizabethan England to, uh, to poisons and uh, bicycling, cycling, and scuba diving and the main geography, lighthouses, uh, all things that I love to learn about. And, uh, and all of it gave me a, a nice appreciation for the added depth that you uh, that you encounter, especially around Shakespeare and his works, well, Shakespeare I really had fun. Shakespeare Revenge, a modern day thriller, and who knows who Shakespeare is? He truly may be a very dangerous man. Well, let's uh, let's let everyone decide. I hope everyone <laughs> gets a chance to read Shakespeare's Revenge, Steve. Thanks so much for the time. Well, tell us how to get your book. For sure. You can um, get it off of Amazon.com, iUniverse.com, or my website, JohnO'Shea.com. Pretty much most of the electronic uh, book sites that uh, folks would encounter. Um, So uh, I hope they do. Any closing thoughts? No, I really appreciate the time. This is uh, part of the thrill of a lifetime to be able to talk about, uh, for me, my first book in print. So... um, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to explore it with me. We want to thank you, John, for being on iUniverse Radio. Thanks, Steve. That was John O'Shea. He is the author of his book, Shakespeare's Revenge. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. You're going- 
Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Pants on Fire, Cutting Through the Biggest Lies of the 21st Century American Plutocracy. And the author, Paul Christofferson. And Paul joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Paul. Steve, how are you? Well, it's good to have you with us. This is going to be a very timely uh, discussion about what's happening in our economy and our government, uh, Wall Street, the banking business. Uh, it's very, very timely. So let me read what you have written about your book. You say big money has taken over our country, both parties. Our government now serves it. Profits as a share of the U.S. economy have never been so high, nor the share of wealth at the top so great, nor job growth so low as they are now, but the plutocracy can never have enough. So it makes up lies. I think people, most people in the country, the regular American taxpayer voter looks at Washington and Wall Street and big business and goes, you know, you guys are just making up your own rules and you don't care about me. You're just going to line your pockets. I mean, that's what it seems like. Well, I think that's right. The, the word lie is a harsh word, and I, and I want to defend that for just a second. Uh, when you call somebody a liar and say they're lying and so forth, you, you kind of need to... Um, back that up a little bit. Uh, The way I get there is uh, there are these outcomes today from all kinds of things, like the the Wall Street bailout being um, maybe a big example, where the outcomes are not what was uh, advertised. Uh, You can say the same thing about the health care law or the the war in Iraq. I mean, depending on your politics, you can can point to uh, whatever you whatever you choose to point to as a kind of an outcome that was disappointing. And this happens now so often and so regularly that you have to ask, wait, why are we getting these outcomes that are not at all what was advertised or expected? And it seems to me there are two possible, um, there are two possible explanations. Uh, at least I can only think of two. Uh, one is that the... Um, the people in charge, the policymakers, the people in control of things, for all their expertise and brains and their education, and <clears throat> I read someplace there are 200 PhDs doing research at the Federal Reserve. Yeah, quite extraordinary when you start to think of it. <clears throat> One explanation for the um, for the uh, outcomes is that all those people are just not competent; that they uh, you know, they, they're just stumbling around the room in the dark and they don't know what they're doing. That has, that has not um, seemed to me to be a satisfying explanation. I mean, I, I know some of these fellows and, and people. They're, they're just wicked smart, know all kinds of things, have access to all kinds of computer models. and so. I mean, they know all kinds of things, and therefore the explanation, which is that they're incompetent, 
it, it just it beggars the uh, imagination. I, I can't get there. What that leaves is the other uh, possible explanation, which is that these people are getting their intended outcomes. <laughs> They're just fibbing to us about what their intentions and, and uh, what their agenda really is. They're lying about their intentions. Uh, now, <clears throat> we all have to choose which explanation fits the best. I, I just happen to think the, uh, uh, the the lying one is better than the first one because the first one's just not plausible, which leaves you with lying. And, and that's why I, I wrote up these lies. There are others, but um, that, that's how I use the word and, and why. Well, we have a list of seven lies in your book, and you have a background that is filled with all kinds of credentials on Wall Street. Why don't you give us a little bit of your professional background? Uh, well, you're very flattering. Uh, actually, I started out in the Episcopal Church. I have been and, and still am an Episcopal priest, and I was on, in the parish for a little bit, and uh, since then I've been on Wall Street. Uh, I worked at an old firm called Cooter Peabody, and then uh, another one a little bit better known lately called Bear Stearns. And then in 1992, I started my own shop. It's called, it was called New Vernon Associates. And New Vernon Associates was a kind of a Wall Street boutique. Uh, and I sold that in, um, in 2008. Uh, and after that, I, I, uh, I wrote this book. Well, let's uh, talk about some of the, just some of the principal ideas. There's so much to discuss here, and we obviously don't have enough time to get into details. But let's talk about a few things that are high on your list. Um, I'm, I'm looking here at some things that uh, you want to emphasize. Let's... Okay, here's one that everyone knows about, of course, the, all the news about the Wall Street bailout. You say, why was the Wall Street bailout a fraud? We know this, that in the, um, in the emergency of the early 1930s, when the, the Depression was really getting rolling, FDR declared uh, what were called bank holidays. Uh, basically, for a period of time, the banks were, um, were closed. And by the time the banks reopened, uh, the public knew which ones were sound and which ones were not sound, but they knew that their deposits were safe. They, they, uh, uh, FDR signed into law this thing called the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance, so that people could be sure about their deposits, they could be sure that payments would clear, uh, they could be sure about the... the um, the transactional nature of things going on uh, uh, continuing. Um, uh, then, uh, then he passed the um, the 1934 law called Glass-Steagall, which prohibited uh, deposit-taking banks from betting in the stock market and from doing uh, all kinds of things with depositors' money. Uh, the direct cost. This is my point. The direct cost to the government of all that was zero. The direct cost to the government of everything FDR did in the 30s was zero, and it worked. Um, we come forward to the 21st century, and what we do instead is we throw trillions, trillions of dollars uh, at the banks. So you have to say, well, what's the, what is the difference between then and now? I mean, why was the cost zero then and trillions now? And the only explanation I can come up with is that then, in the 30s, it was not part of the national agenda to serve and protect the people at the top. Uh, today, it is the, uh, uh, today it's the whole agenda. That is the agenda of our, uh, of our government today, which is to serve and protect the people at the top. When, when Wall Street got in trouble, um, well, you remember when Detroit got in trouble, the, um, the, um, CEOs had to come to Washington and promise to do all kinds of things and, and uh, submit plans and, and grovel, and they, they got uh, very, very little money out of it. When Wall Street got in trouble, um, there were emergency you know, meetings over the weekend in private, undisclosed, 
at the end of which um, they got trillions of dollars absolutely unconditionally, absolutely unconditionally. Uh, that was the most remarkable aspect to me, is if you, um, if you give um, money to a, um, a beggar on the street who holds out his uh, tin cup, if you, if you give uh, that uh, person some money, you sort of know what's going to happen. If instead you say, let's, let's walk across the street here, over to the cafe, and I'll buy you lunch, and then you're going to get a different outcome. The remarkable thing about the Wall Street bailout was, was the trillions of dollars and the trillions of dollars that were, were given absolutely unconditionally. And the reason we know it was just a gift, just a straight wealth transfer from the public to the banks, the reason we know that's all it is, is that um, none of that money made it past the banks. There's no more lending going on now than there was during the uh, supposed uh, crisis. It just went to the banks and it stopped there, every dime of it. Well, here's some of the lies that you highlight that you put in Pants on Fire. Uh, just uh, read a couple of the titles. Loose money is another way to grow the economy. That's uh, lie number two. Here's lie number three. The stock market is the best investment and an indicator of the economy. Well, that is a shocking statement for most people. Most people would go, what? I thought the stock market is the greatest indicator of the economy. Tell us what you mean there. Um, well, I, I've been following this uh, since, um, I've been doing this since 1975. And uh, I, I've just been so interested over the years to watch the, um, the uh, almost contortionist uh, uh, efforts that get made to relate what the stock market does on a given day or in a given month or in a given year related to what's going on in the economy. Extraordinary uh, uh, efforts get made to, to try to link them because m much of the time, most of the time, it, it's not apparent what, what the connection is between um, you know, unemployment going up and the stock market going up uh, I mean, that, that kind of thing happens all the time. And explanations uh, come around like, well, of course, it's not what's happening now. It's the expectation that the people are looking. <laughs> it seems to me a better explanation is that um, all the stock market is, is it's a thing that the Federal Reserve inflates and reflates and inflates and reflates. And it has nothing to do with the... Um, has nothing to do with the real economy. There is no correlation that I can think of between um, um, uh, the condition of people in the real economy on the one hand, and on the other hand, what's going on in the stock market. The last two or three months being a, being just a marvelous example of how um, what what the Federal Reserve does is it prints another several hundred billion dollars and it goes right into the stock market. And that's its one, one and only effect. It has no other outcome except that it reflates financial asset uh, bubbles, uh, but, but it has no effect on the real economy. Yeah, we rarely hear the term bubble uh, tied directly to what's going on in the stock market. All we hear are the reports of whether the stock market's up and down. And if it's up, we're all supposed to be happy. Well, there was, um, you remember uh, several years ago, there was this... Um, uh, phrase around called investor class, and there was a tremendous effort to, to make the investor class sound very, very broad and very well populated, like it included all of us and so forth. Uh, actually, the, the person who has a $50,000 401k and a $200,000 mortgage uh, is not really part of the investor class. I mean, not, not really. Um, that person is not able to trade on inside information the way big people do. Uh, that person is just, uh, you know, he's the sap at the table. Uh, I don't mean to be harsh, but, but that person is the sap at the table. The person who has a, um, a defined benefit pension, the stock market can quadruple or quintuple, and that person won't see any benefit from that. Defined benefit means means defined benefit. He's going to get his payment from his pension plan, or she, 
regardless of what the stock market does. The, the only beneficiary of a rising stock market is the um, is the pension plan, um, you know, the, the pension plan sponsor. So uh, I have I have uh, thought for years, not just recently, but I thought for years that um, the only thing the Federal Reserve is interested in doing is inflating the stock market. And B, as it does that, it will have no. It does. It doesn't have this spin-off effect. It doesn't have this follow-on derivative effect on the rest of the economy. It it just doesn't. Now, an interesting thing happened a month or so ago is that. Um, the chairman of the Fed, Mr. Bernanke, finally came out and said, he, he said, since 1987, when um, Alan Greenspan uh, took over, neither he nor uh, Mr. Bernanke has, have, has ever actually come out and said this before. But um, at last month, Mr. Bernanke said it was that uh, what he's doing with all this quantitative easing that we're seeing now, uh, all the money printing, he came out and said, what I'm doing is I'm inflating the stock market. And then he went on to say, well, of course, that will, that will produce spending and so on and so forth. <clears throat> he still has not come clean about the, um, the you know, the, that linkage not being there. He hasn't fessed up to that yet. But he at least has come out and said, uh, all he's doing is pumping up the stock market. Fascinating, fascinating. He just didn't explain what all it took to get there. Well, Paul, uh, a lot of material here, uh, very timely, uh, tied to a lot of news that we're hearing every day. The title of the book, Pants on Fire, Cutting Through the Biggest Lies of 21st Century American Plutocracy, and the author, Paul Christofferson. Paul, tell us how to get your book. The book has a website, www. Christofferson, which is Christopher with a son on the end, Christofferson, and then the letter P, ChristoffersonP.com. That's the book website. Very good, and of course, you, we can all get it at iUniverse or any of the online retailers, book retailers. You can order it. Thanks again, Paul, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. That was Paul Christofferson. He is the author of his book, Pants on Fire, Cutting Through the Biggest Lies of 21st Century American Plutocracy. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.